It's Tuesday, December 20th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The January 6th committee did an excellent job in fact-finding presentation and communicating its case. It all now culminates in criminal referrals to the Justice Department. Only it doesn't. The process was the culmination. These referrals have no force of law. You know that. The power, we're told, is symbolic, but I've been wondering what is the difference in this case between symbolic and meaningless? Don't get me wrong, and former presidents don't do me wrong, Donald Trump should pay for what he did in trying to overturn the results of the election. Therefore, if Georgia prosecutors think they have evidence, they'll bring charges. If Merrick Garland thinks that he can bring a federal case, he will. So the symbolism of the referrals are what? They symbolize the actual enforcement that sworn law enforcement officials with statutory power actually have? What kind of symbol is that? When the symbol is weaker than the actual, the symbol is at best adjacent to what we're talking about. It's sort of drafting along beside the real. It's like an ancient culture engaging in a rain prayer. Either it will rain or it won't rain. It's just that people yearn for an expression of their desire. And then afterwards, if it does rain, they can tell themselves, well, we did what we could. Luke Broadwater was on the New York Times podcast, The Daily, today. He's been covering these hearings. Here was his assessment. Well, it is a symbolic act, but it is a powerfully symbolic act. It is the United States Congress saying we've thrown every resource imaginable into this investigation. Mm -hmm. And these are our conclusions. And we wish we had the power to charge, but we don't. And so right. the ball is now in your court. Now, of course, it doesn't oblige the Justice Department to do anything. The Justice Department doesn't have to listen to Congress. But it does create a tremendous amount of public pressure. I'll go further than saying it doesn't oblige the Justice Department to act. I would say it shouldn't. It shouldn't oblige the Justice Department because when Republicans control Congress in two weeks and they'll be asking for prosecutions of Hunter Biden or Alejandro Mayorkas or whomever, we should actually be saying, no, 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 no. The Justice Department will and should be making independent assessments. And in all likelihood, that's also what the Justice Department is going to do here. But if they were going to act anyway, now with these referrals, it'll make it look political. And to that, I say, yeah, so what, right? Everything looks or is said to look political. That's true. I wish it weren't the case, but it is. It's not a grievous error to put forward these referrals. I understand when you have a committee like the January 6th committee, this is the natural outgrowth of such a committee. If you just take their actions, their process, their findings, and it doesn't lead to a report with a do something clause, it will feel denuded. And of course, there is the chance that this does nudge the Justice Department into bringing charges they otherwise wouldn't. And that's good, right? I don't think it's good. Not if they weren't. If the Justice Department isn't going to do something, but public pressure makes them do something, we got to question their calculations in the first place, or ours, or the public's. Anyway, if the Justice Department were to act only or significantly because they're feeling pressure as symbolized in these referrals, it's not going to be conscious. It will just be a feeling in the ether that's pushing us towards this one conclusion. But overall, I do think it's not a positive development. 
if the referrals work to bring pressure that otherwise wouldn't be there. The only way the referrals have a real-world impact is if something goes seriously wrong with the functioning of government. But of course, if there wasn't some serious government dysfunction to begin with, there would be no discussion that I'm engaged in now, no committee, no attack, and no threat to democracy in the form of one Donald J. Trump. On the show today, if you like my ambivalence as regard to what you just heard, wait till you hear my thoughts about criminal prosecution of a nonagenarian Nazi. But first, Sam Quinones is the author of The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Today, we talk to him about homelessness and why cartel is kind of a grand name for the criminal gangs that have flooded the U.S. with this potent product. Sam Quinones up next. Fentanyl and meth, the new kind of meth, are a different, deadlier, more dangerous type of drug than U.S. enforcement and social services have ever had to deal with. In this part two of our interview with Sam Quinones, author of The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, I ask him about the root causes of why we, as humans, chase dopamine. I start by talking about the nucleus accumbens. That's the dopamine-receiving pleasure center of the brain. I put to Sam my idea that we shouldn't have a drug czar. We should have a nucleus accumbens czar. How America, with our tawdry sideshow history, our embrace of hucksterism, is more oriented towards the dopamine fix and the mistake of pleasure for contentment. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, man. I, I, I think that's, that's exactly what's going There's a whole lot of that. You know, take a look at, at some of the ways these things are marketed. I'm just appalled by some of the ways these things are marketed. If you look at burgers, look at a burger, right? You never see a burger in, in a pan shot of far away. It's all almost like a pornographic shot of this big thing, you know, oozing goo. And the, the language frequently around it is the language of addiction. It will trigger your cravings and this kind of thing. And I think we have this enormous economic power arrayed against us that is absolutely de dedicated to finding ways of prodding the nucleus, of manipulating our reward pathways in our brain, our brain chemistry. And, and along that way, it starts with the Facebook like, you know, button, and it goes to the, you know, social media, and of course, sugar and Coke and Coke and sodas and on and on and on like that, all of that stuff, it's all legal. And then way out at the end, you get the Sinaloa drug cartel. You know what I mean? It's it feels to me like it, there's this, there's this enormous amount of money and brain power devoted to prodding and plucking our, our brain chemistry in, in many, many ways and getting us used to the idea, as you say, that pleasure is somehow fulfillment or contentment. And, and that is a huge part of our economy, you know, and it kind of prods us and, and, um, and, and, and gets us kind of prepared for deeper addiction, it seems to me uh, at times. 
Yeah, that is a deep point. We are we have this uh, we are the sybaritic people that have the means to mistake pleasure for contentment. There are these more desperate people that aren't beholden to that effect, but they know how to manipulate us. They come over our border and um, take advantage of the fact that our society is not protecting ourselves or recognizing this ourselves, or if there's ever a choice between, well, do we allow the marketer to market aggressively for the pleasure centers or do we protect the consumer? It's always the marketer that the deference is given to. I mean, this is almost like a sci-fi novel more than a story, a very um, you know tangible, touchable story that you wrote, but there, there are those dynamics going on. Oh, I think I think that it that's that's one of the things that makes me makes me doubt whether we can ever safely and maturely and responsibly legalize drugs in this country because we have such a hard time culturally. We just don't have a culture of standing up to big moneyed interests and saying you can't do that. We have you know, the Bill of Rights and so on, which has been interpreted to mean that you can market any damn thing you want in any way you want, um, it sounds like. But but it seems to me, too, in our culture, you know, we just don't have this ability to say, no, that's not going to work because we believe it's, it, you know, I know we might you might make a ton of money, but that's not the most important thing. Standing up to moneyed interests is just, we don't do it well. That's one of the reasons, if you look at the, the marijuana legalization uh, that's gone on in, a, in several states. I think I find it appalling. I have to say that we are allowing in many of those states marijuana, which grows perfectly well in the sun. Marijuana can now legal be uh, sold for commercial use, commercial sale after it's been grown indoors. Indoor grown pot is an abomination. It's it's a, the 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 cor- the the the, the uh, um, carbon footprint of marijuana is just outrageous. Well, there's no way we should be allowing legalizing marijuana that's grown indoors, but we don't have the willingness or the ability culturally, politically, I don't know, economically to say, no, we'll allow this to be legal in these cases, but not if you're going to grow it indoors and with the carbon footprint that one bud of marijuana is going to represent. We just don't have that in our, in our, in our DNA. And here in my city, we've not, we haven't legalized it, but we've not unlegalized it. So you can't really sell it, but no one's prosecuting you for selling it. It's not a serious, systematic, well thought out system. In California, you could go to any doctor, I guess they had to be a doctor, complain of uh, neck pain and you'd get your medical marijuana card. And that was all seen as, you know, a necessary workaround to correct an injustice. But really, what was it saying? That no one's serious about this. There are no possible effects to worry about it. It's just like marketing. And, And I'm sure that the puritanical parts of America will make it so that actually selling to 16-year-olds will be quote-unquote discouraged. But of course, this is going to happen. And 14-year-old, this is going to happen more and more. And the sale to 14-year-olds will happen way before the scholarship is in about what it does to the brain of these kids. It's inevitable. Yeah. Now, I think this is, having lived in Mexico, um, this is very upsetting to watch because in Mexico, I learned if I didn't know already, um, I, I saw firsthand what happens when you undercut the rule of law. And I saw the effect on poor people. The, effect, the, the reason we have so much immigration from Mexico is one basic 
reason is because there is no rule of law in Mexico, and so many people view their chances of moving ahead as only connected to how much power they can be affiliated with. And most people, allies folks have no power. And so they're willing to risk their lives, literally risk their lives to come come north. I, I saw this over and over and over and over in many parts of the country. And it bothers me enormously when I see in the United States this kind of cavalier approach to the rule of law. If you want to make it legal, then do it in a mature, responsible, adult way. But this idea, like you described, of kind of like half-baked thing, it just bothers me because I've seen the damage that can come when you approach the law in that half-baked kind of way. I want to talk specifically about homelessness because there is an existing idea that if you're somewhat progressive about homelessness, you think of it as A, a problem of housing. People don't have enough housing. But B, what you were talking about before, there's a lot of trauma and people self-medicate. I wonder what you think about that term in relation to the drugs you're talking about. People self-medicate, they might become addicted. And then sadly enough, once addicted, they lose their homes. Is that actually how it's playing out with uh, the new meth and the fentanyl that you've been documenting? Sure, to some degree, sure. The, the, the homeless story is a very complicated story. It's about as complicated as every homeless person out there, it would seem to me. I would say that, that what I've encountered, frankly, is, is, a, is a very, very, however, um, strident, unyielding, unwielding, unyielding approach to um, homelessness. It says that all homelessness is basically homelessness is basically caused by lack of affordable housing, and therefore the solution to homelessness is is affordable is more affordable housing. And it's true that the housing is part of the issue, and affordable housing is part of the issue. And 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 for some people, it's absolutely uh, the, the issue. But uh, as you watch this, these two drugs spread nationwide. I think they are absolutely part of the homeless story and have been for some for a few years now. Certainly, methamphetamine. Um, so prevalent over the last decade or so in, in so many parts of the country is driving people to homelessness on, on one hand. Um, and then, but then there are many reasons why people end up homeless, but regardless of why you ended up homeless, there's meth is so prevalent now that it, you use it while on the street and therefore it makes you much more, uh, uh, it makes it much more difficult to get you out of homelessness. It kind of inures you to homelessness, dri- drives you out of kind of away from reality. And so you're no longer living in this grim reality that, 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 that are facing this grim reality that you're, 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 you're living in. There's no doubt that, that housing is part of, of the issue. It is not the only issue though. And that is really, I think the problem that we're, we're, we're facing. There's a good anecdote in the afterword of your book, I don't need to tell you, but I'll tell the audience, where uh, a housing advocate or a homelessness advocate in West Virginia says, see, proof that homelessness is about money for housing is that West Virginia is extremely affordable and we have no homeless problem, but we do have a drug problem. Only that information is outdated. It's as outdated as knowledge of what the new meth is doing to people is. Precisely. And that's why I wish he had visited that fellow who wrote that. Um, using West Virginia as the proof that meth can't be involved in, or uh, in, in homelessness, I wish he had visited <laughs> West Virginia as I did and wrote three chapters on uh, in my book about uh, one of those towns that was mightily affected, had no homelessness, 
town of Clarksburg, West Virginia, in about 2017, really had very little homelessness, one or two people, really. And then this meth began to, to, to arrive and just staggering, again, staggering quantities. And very quickly, people began to go out of their mind. And very quickly, people are on the street. And very quickly, then people are in that town. It wasn't so much tents people were living in as abandoned houses, uh, destroying houses. As soon as a house went, went vacant, was up for rent, um, they would come in and, and kind of strip it of the copper wire. And there was all kinds of stories. But basically, they were a lot of those folks were homeless living in abandoned houses. As you point out, this kind of meth also makes the user um, fight fight uh, walls, fight a home with walls and want to live in a tent. Exactly. And, and to me, that's the remarkable thing uh, that we're seeing across the country. And I think many tent encampments are almost uh, real-time uh, displays of how profoundly drugs of abuse and these drugs of abuse, given their supply and their potency of especially masterful job of tra- of squelching or redirecting, better put, our basic instincts for survival. And that's what drugs do in general. Alcohol does it, heroin does it, but these drugs do it especially well to say the only thing that you really need is dope. You know, and that is that is what you're seeing in tent encampments. And we're, we're seeing it now as the temperatures drop. We were seeing it last year as the temperatures got very, very scary. People freezing to death, people enduring frostbite, losing digits because they were afraid to leave the tents and the homeless encampments where they had easy access to their drugs. And to me, that is that is a, a profound result of, again, getting back to the supply of this ex- these extraordinarily potent drugs. When it comes to homelessness, I want to make explicit what you're actually saying. Experts have long noted a correlation between homelessness, mental health problems, and drug addiction. And it's ne- it's not really clear what the causal flows are. And for different people, it's probably a different calculation. But now, I think experts aren't sufficiently, what you're saying is there aren't sufficiently Um, thinking about and understanding how these new drugs, this new concoction of meth and fentanyl, especially the meth though, actually affects the user and how that accelerates uh, the entire problem and maybe confounds the normal ways we used to think about the correlations between those three comorbidities. Yes, and I would say that's that's right, and that, that everything these drugs change everything, and ideas and approaches and policies that were devised or thought out pre meth, pre fentanyl nationwide in, in these ghastly quantities and, and potency are they these drugs will thwart those those best intentioned uh, ideas, and and I just think that we have not adjusted our thinking. Even as, you know, our thinking, the drugs have changed, our thinking hasn't to some degree, you know what I mean? And to me, that, that, that is really kind of what's going on. It's not to say that there is no, no issue of housing. It's just to say that there is so much more than, than that. And, and to use one tool, this is the other thing. When you use one tool to address an issue that is rooted in our brain chemistry, you are going to run into problems. We did that in the drug war. We used law enforcement. Now, the, the thing about law enforcement is not that we, it, it, the drug war had its problems, not because we used law enforcement, but because we only used law enforcement. We, tr- we, we decided that we could eradicate, literally, this was the phrasing at the time, literally eradicate all pain using one 
tool, and that was the prescription opioid painkiller, suggesting that we, as I've heard people talk about very seriously, we can solve the housing problem with just housing, to me, just seems out of step with what is clearly the, the case uh, um, in, in tent encampments and, and, and cities and rural areas too, I would say, uh, across, the, across the country, that we need a combined, a multidisciplinary approach to deal with these very, very powerful powerful drugs that, that are a major source, a major driving force in, in our homelessness issue. So I'm hearing what you say about drug legalization, about homelessness, about law enforcement. Are you a progressive? Are you a conservative? What, what are you? How do you map on to politics? I am a reporter who bases his conclusions on on many many interviews on parts of the dealing with parts of the country all across the country or many parts of the country talking with people of all walks of life but mainly people who are living it firsthand and that would be rec- addicts in recovery uh, paramedics ER docs cops outreach workers etc 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 and I try very hard to be a, a reporter of immersion in the topic number one but then also very, very open to finding my own independent way. I've been an independent reporter most of my 35 years, freelancer, and I'm not here to kowtow to conservative or liberal or left-wing or right-wing orthodoxies and and dogmas. And so I'm finding, I think I'm finding my my own way, but it's based on what I, the reporting that I have done, period, end of story. Sam Quinones is the author of Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. That was a National Book Critics Circle Award winner. His new one, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth, is indeed a National Book Critics Circle Award finalist. Thank you so much, Sam. Great to be with you, Mike. Thank you very much for the time. And now the spiel. 97-year-old Imgard Ferkner found herself being sentenced in a criminal court in Germany today. A year earlier, she was supposed to travel to court from her assisted living facility. But instead of heading to the trial, she went on the lam. She hopped into a taxi before being detained at a nearby train station. But they were able to catch the nonagenarian. They refused her request for a trial in absentia, which isn't allowed under German law and they put her in the dock. The charge, for which she was not originally put into custody, but allowed to travel to court on her own, or to try to avoid doing so, as was her gambit last September, the charge was serious. Aiding and abetting the murder of 10,505 people. Press accounts said nearly 11,000 people. NBC said last year that it was 11,412 people, which I think it was, but they brought it down to 10,505 people. In any case, it was a lot of people she was accused of helping kill. Because as a young woman, a girl of 18 and 19, Ferkner worked as a secretary, taking shorthand at the Stutthof death camp. 65,000 Jews, Poles, Russians... Jehovah's Witnesses were murdered there, and the 10,500-ish figure was the death toll during the time Ferkner was employed as a civil servant. Ferkner said she didn't know what was going on. The court did not believe her. 
And the sheer number of those processed and disappeared, plus her status in the central office, the nerve center, as it were, makes her claim seem dubious. Germany used to not prosecute low-level administrative functionaries, but in past years they have been, maybe because they're running out of officers and SS insignia-wearing soldiers to prosecute. So it was said of Irmgard Ferkner, as has been said, of the last few convicted of crimes like hers, quote, Ferkner's trial could be the last to take place in Germany into Nazi-era crimes. That's a quote from the BBC. Ferkner's trial took place, her conviction took place, and her sentencing took place today in juvenile court. Isn't that macabre? Because she was 18 and 19 when she worked at the camp. We are vastly different people between the ages of 18 and 97. So different, like the ship of Theseus. Parts may have been worn down, replaced, and worn down several times over. Yes, we're the same collection of DNA, and yes, the acts and sins of our past still have reverberations into the present. But I don't know what I think of the prosecution. Accountability, that's the watchword. And so we have the specter of Ferkner trying to escape. She's showing guilt there, does she not? Or she's showing a frail, old, confused lady not wanting to face the charges of the worst kind of crimes against humanity. And even if that's the case, how much should we allow that? Of course, loathe the Nazis, and I have no sympathy for Ferkner or any of Hitler's willing executioners, at least the Ferkner of the teenage years. But I'm trying to think about what is the quality of justice delivered in a juvenile court to a 97-year-old defendant. I will tell you what the sentence was, the sentence for playing the part in the murder of 10,500 people. Two years, suspended. It works out to a term of 100 minutes per person killed, or would have if it weren't a suspended sentence. It is kind of ridiculous. It is kind of bizarre. I'm thinking, is it obscene, or is it the only sane act we can impose on an obscene circumstance? I believe the outcome was dictated every step of the way by there only being one acceptable answer to the question right before the authorities. I mean, do you not charge her? Do you say, live your life despite what you've done? No, you can't do that. So you charge her. And if you charge her, you got to try her. And if you try her, the law dictates it takes place in juvenile court. And if you try her in juvenile court, you can't find her not guilty. And if you find her guilty, you really can't make a 97-year-old go to prison. What kind of statement would that be about our commitment to humanity? So there we have it. A hundred minutes of life, a 97-year-old, some sort of statement about justice. I come back to the idea that the perversion of what the Nazis did was so all-encompassing and reverberated so strongly through time and space that we're left with this result. The office of the Secretary General of the United Nations commented on the 97-year-old's two-year suspended sentence, quote, it shows that it's never too late to ensure that there was some accountability for crimes committed of such horrific nature. Some accountability is what was achieved. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer, Michelle Pasquez, COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>